Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have The Omen starring Gregory Peck, Lee Remick, David Warner, Billy Whitelaw, written by David Seltzer and directed by Richard Donner. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. It's time to get a little spooky and start a new film review cast. This one we're calling Horror Plus One. Uh, for this cast, we're going to have a, a guest for each of the episodes. And up first from 1976, we have The Omen. And we just finished watching in the other room there. But before we get, uh, go any further, we have to introduce uh, the guest in the room right now. I'd like to introduce you to Rob. This is my first time meeting him. And it's his first time on the podcast. Welcome, Rob. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate that. I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Thanks for being on with us. Of course. And as we christen a new film review cast, we're going to christen a new bottle of whiskey. This is Kings Creek, Tennessee Sour Mash Whiskey. Cheers, gentlemen. Cheers. I'll tell you a little bit about it. Let me know what you smell in there, too. I'm getting vanilla. You're going to tell me it's caramel or something, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, way o- off. it's always caramel. No, you're supposed to get like a lot of sweet notes, like whipped cream, um, pie crust caramel, notes like that. Mm. I smell like a little. Cinnamon. Cinnamon. I smell a little tea in there, <laughs> like, like like black brewed tea. Mm-hmm. And what about taste-wise? What do you guys think of that? Tastes like the Antichrist. Oh, wait, that's too early. We're not there yet, are we? No, it's good, actually. It's actually really good. I don't know what I taste in that. That's, I, This is ridiculous to say this, but it's almost simply complex. Like I can taste a lot of distinct sort of blended together nicely. Mm, okay. That doesn't even make sense, but that's what I'm feeling here. Is that definite sour mash? Yeah, definite. Taste in it. Definitely. So uh, Tennessee, this is a Tennessee whiskey. So for those, those listeners, a Tennessee whiskey must be at minimum 51% corn and must be produced within Tennessee, be distilled at less than 80%. Uh, it's 160 proof, uh, filtered through a bed of sugar, maple charcoal, and be aged for a minimum of two years in new charred barrels. So because this is a mash, this is the second mm-hmm, the second, true. the second coming of this of this whiskey. Wow, how <laughs> appropriate. How appropriate. I like sour mash whiskeys. I think a lot of the ones I have, I find them would be a little bit smoother than traditional bourbons yeah i picked that up i think the carbon that is used in the first time through out of the barrel is a bit tempered the second time through right Mm -hmm. so um i'm with you on that excellent are you a bit of a whiskey drinker rob at all or um i stick i do like i like bourbon okay a lot i don't go with sour mash or Mm -hmm. vary from that very much but this is good excellent well we're off to a good start let's get this thing started with our flight question That is 
just so troubling to begin with. The choir from hell. <laughs> it's, it's like the bastardized version of a church choir. Is, that's what I was going to say. You and I both have a tie to that, right? Mm-hmm. And that's just so offsetting to begin with. Mm-hmm. Wait till I tell you what they're actually saying. I'll save that for a little bit later. Lovely. But Rob, as a guest, you know, the guest um, will bring the questions uh, with them. So I think you have a pretty interesting flight question uh, lined up for us. Why don't you go ahead and hit us with that? Okay. Um, so I'm a big fan of story. I love story. I've read a lot of novels. I'm an English teacher. So I had a student one time ask me, what What are my favorite books? What are my favorite movies? And as I was naming them, all of a sudden I started to realize something. All of them had a first-person narrator, Okay. Um, either in the novel itself or if it was a novel that had been made into a film. It also had the first-person narrator in that. So... I was kind of wondering with this one, if it were to be remade and you were to pick one of the characters out of this, who would you have as the teller of this story? Um, I mean, you could have the father out of that one or Damien himself, but those are kind of obvious for me. I, I had, I feel there was somebody else out of that one that I think would be perfect for that role. You'd have to alter some things within that. Um, so who would be the narrator of this? And if you could think of anybody, I guess it doesn't have to be somebody that's still alive, but I, mm-hmm. I hear a particular voice in that one. So sure. who would you cast as that? It doesn't have to be the actor. Excellent. I love it. You want to go first, Matt? Um, do I want to go first? Do you want to go first? I don't care. Right, go ahead. The part that hung me up on this a little bit was deciding who was left at the end that I could still use. But if you think about any sort of supernatural element that occurs in possession or most horror kind of tropes, there really isn't that much difference between the living and the non-living anyway. Mm-hmm. So what I'm going to say, I can't have a voice from beyond the grave yeah, in this why, movie. You know, why not? That's yeah. a stupid argument. Yeah. So I'm not going to make it. Okay. That being said, I'm going to choose the first nanny. Um, the one that hangs herself at the beginning of the film. Oh yes. Okay. And I think the reason I want to choose her is the sacrificial way that she offers herself to Damien at what? Five maybe ish. Probably fives. It's so bastardized and corrupted and reeks of inappropriateness. And there's the river of jealousy that's running through her. When Lee Rimmick says, let me take the picture at the birthday party and not you. And then, the presentatious way that she stands in that window and jumps. All of that speaks to, I don't want to say commitment, but adherence to a larger purpose through this young child, which kind of is the premise of this film for me in a lot of ways too. So I'm going to give it to her and I want the voiceover to be Natalie Portman. Mm. That's where I'm going to go. That's pretty good. I dig it. Thank you. So that's, that's my entry. Nurse, crazy ner- or crazy uh, nanny na- as as Natalie Portman yep. narration. Perfect. What do you got, Rob? For me, I feel like the the one that catches on to everything quicker is the uh, the photographer, mm-hmm. the reporter Jennings. Jennings, right? yeah. Um, where at first, I mean, he has no idea what's going on, but he starts to piece it together, and then he becomes the one that doesn't just find it, but then he's trying to convince the father of what is happening right there. So Mm -hmm. I think he would be a perfect one for that one to talk about that. Um, I thought about the voice beyond the grave thing and I mean, yes, that could work also, but if he, 
if he kind of died closer to the end, I think that would be an amazing final scene where even after the funeral, um, at that point where you think it's going to get past it, maybe they have the decoy where he survives something you think was going to be the one that, you know, decapitates him. But mm-hmm. then at the end, the final scene is like when he gets decapitated at that point. So it still follows through with that. Okay. Um, but it could be done beyond the grave also. Um, for the voice, I would go with Jason Robards. Ooh. I think the reason Jason Robards because of um, something wicked this, this way comes. comes. Ooh, I remember nice. the, the scene where he is talking to the carnival leader, Dark, mm-hmm. um, and he's reading out of the Bible, you know, the verses out of that. For some reason, that sticks in my head when I think about, like, basically somebody talking to the devil type of thing. And so I think his voice would have been perfect with that. The photographer's British, of course, so mm-hmm. that would kind of have to change. But, um, yeah, I like his voice a lot, and I think he'd do an excellent job with that. That's excellent. If you were alive. Jason Robards, perfect. The nanny's name in that one that I mentioned earlier is just the nanny. She doesn't even have a name, but you know it who Holly. it is? Is it a Holly? Mm, maybe it is Holly. <laughs> you know who her dad is, though? Uh-uh. Jack Palance. Really? Her name is Holly Palance, and... Um, that's her dad. Oh, awesome. So there you go. Wow. Yep. Yeah, her name, her her actress name is Holly Palance. It, interesting. I okay. think in the script and in the notes, she's just given the title of Nanny. Okay. Like the second Mrs. DeWinter, <laughs> but she's in the movie a little longer. We'll have to talk about the, about the governess because I definitely got a Rebecca vibe off of Mrs. Baylock there. Indeed. All right, Jesse. All right, I'm going to go. I love I love this question because it's allowed us to get into a creative headspace to kind of rework the film from a different perspective, a first person perspective. And I kind of thought I I went the non ghosty kind of way of like you said, like how you can justify a supernatural element in this film. Yeah. But I decided to give the narration to the one left standing at the end, and that is the president himself. And uh, playing the role of the president, I want Gary Oldman. Yeah. I did have an honorable mention of of who of who to use as I, I I do either him or James Spader, someone with a good good voice, and both those guys can you know pull off some pretty good voices. But I'd find it interesting to kind of see the president narrating the story before you as his tale is about to be told in the future, kind of. <laughs> mm-hmm. So no, that was great. I I, I like I like that and. You know, you don't get narration a lot in film. And when you do, you think of a few, I think of two right away, Shawshank Redemption and Goodfellas. Those are very obvious narrators to me, but it can be used as an interesting storytelling mechanism where without it, I don't know if the story works as well. Well, if you open up over black with some script, that is a statement that sets a tone for the movie. In effect, you are then narrating the film without the actual voiceover to do it. And there is that element in this movie. Mm Mm-hmm. So in a strange way, I agree with you completely. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a great question, Rob, because I think in horror, the actual voiceover and who's giving it and where it's coming from opens up to a whole world of extra interest and conflict and where we start and stop with humans and all of those things. But this movie is pretty ripe for that, actually. Mm -hmm. I think there's lots of elements that could be delivered effectively with a narrative in that. And it's something that when you brought that up, I was thinking about the exorcism of Emily Rose. That movie has been on my mind a lot lately. This movie is on my mind a lot, period. We talk about that film a Mm -hmm. lot because you know how much I like it. Mm -hmm. But the courtroom drama bit in that 
where they're trying to determine why and how that effectively is a narrative element to yep. get to the story because it's happening on the witness stand. Right. So yep. it's narration. Yep. So I think it's a great idea. Love it. Yeah. Good job. Good job, guys. Thank you, Rob. Of course. Yeah. Cheers, cheers to that. Uh, let us know yeah, who, who you'd like to have narrate the, the omen and which actors you'd like to kind of place in these roles. But let's get this thing, um, let's keep this thing moving along. Let's get to happy hour time and our review breakdown of The Omen. If I may suggest, it even resembles your wife need never know. It would be a blessing to her and to the child. your own child except a jackal is the only relevant <laughs> yeah there's that one slight difference <laughs> yeah we'll get to that you say tomato i say tomato all right let's start at the beginning as we do on these podcasts let's start with the opening credit sequence which is you know pretty basic but we're treated to two i think really striking things right away one is whatever like backdrop background that they conjured up with the little boy with the outline of an upside down cross really reflection as it's kind of making his silhouette. And then this kind of really interesting score by Jerry Goldsmith, which is mostly choral and some strings, but it's as we kind of stated earlier, it's very church like, but like not the church you'd ever want to go to. Rob, you had some ties to the church growing up. I did. So you hear these choral movements and then they are, changed in this sort of demonic way does it jog you back to a place like that's not supposed to happen you know it does um being a kid growing up and going to church all the time you know i just kind of got used to certain things that i didn't notice that kind of stood out um remember my wife went to a service with my family much later on and we hadn't been like attending church so it'd been a long time since i'd been to a church service and the churches that I went to, they always did this choral reading thing where the, you know, somebody would get up there, they'd read one line, and then the entire congregation would read the next line, and then, you know, kind of back and forth. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I remember, I guess her church, as a kid, they never did that. And so all of a sudden, you know, this person reads this, and then everybody responds together, and it's almost this, like, chanting thing and as they all read. And she got this look of, like, what the hell is happening here? This is strange, yeah. Yeah, and so, I mean, that, and then I started thinking about it and started thinking also, I'm like, I never read beforehand. What am I actually reading that I'm saying along mm-hmm. with everybody, you know, and everybody's kind of saying the same thing and you're not really paying attention to what you're actually saying. I think my father always did. He knew everything. Mm-hmm. But um, but for me, yeah, then looking back at that, I was like, yeah, I could see how that really sounds kind of creepy right there. Yes, well, check it out. Isn't the word that they use to describe that often haunting, mm-hmm. haunting yeah. choral melodies? Yep. What the hell? Like sometimes words get used in a way that the word doesn't really represent what it means, but the context takes a larger hole. In this case, haunting does not. If someone says, boy, that's a haunting sound in that Simon and Garfunkel album or Mamas and Papas, or wherever you want to go with any of that haunting-like lyrics, mm-hmm. 
man, that's not a compliment. Yeah. Who the hell wants to be haunted? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and that's every choir and whether it's Ave Maria or I have to say this though. Yeah. I love being in a room with two other growing up in a non-secular environment because it did such a wonder for my interest in horror. So many things that horror does trample on these moments or these standards in religious upbringing that you just can't do. And we talked about it a lot with the exorcist, but Mm -hmm. this is it too, right? Yep. It, that rebellious piece of watching that creates such a larger buy-in with the film. I think that has a lot to do with why I enjoy horror so much. Mm -hmm. Church was brutal. That was a horror show in of itself, like Catholic mass on Sunday for an hour and a half in the sweltering heat, no matter if it was December or August, it was always 110 degrees in there. Maybe they're simulating hell. Yeah. Was brutal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, I mean, it was horror from the beginning to be honest with you. Yeah. But I think, the concept in, in scary movies that tramples on horror for me is me kind of middle fingering like the standard dogmatic bullshit. Something sacred, yeah. That was so restrictive. Mm-hmm. That's just my little take on that. Oh, that's interesting. I, I, I like it. So here's the lyrics of what, what they're saying in there. So these lyrics are Latin, obviously, uh, for we drink the blood, we eat the flesh, raise the body of Satan. And the main title track of this uh, theme is Av Santini, which means Hail Satan. So, holy Christ. I know. So, I'm, I'm a big. Very subtle. Yeah, very, very <laughs> subtle. What are they getting at on that? <laughs> What's this movie about? <laughs> yeah. No, um, I'm a big fan of, of vocals in, um, in film scores, whether that be Lord of the Rings or, you know, you know composers like James Horner or whatnot. And I think it, it, it brings, it's a tone setter, like right from the beginning. Like, and then it keeps coming up in various forms throughout the thing. I don't know if you guys remember the, uh, let's see, it was um, when they were in the, the cemetery and it was, it was just like, mm-hmm. it was, and it was like, like really whispering, quiet, like choral chanting. And I'm just like, Ooh. <laughs> like what is that? So let's get started. It is uh, June 6th, six o'clock AM in rome of all places it has to be rome like yeah in the land of in the land of the holies here mm-hmm. and uh gregory peck as robert thorne is on his way to the hospital as as we're kind of told that the child didn't quite make it and as we're going to kind of get into is this like film like a big like catholic cover-up like thing? like what's going on with the baby and they <laughs> inserting a new child but as the priest said in the clip um, their child is dead and we don't have to kind of tell the mother there's a lot going wrong here right, oh. right away. There's this other child. The mother died. Um, it even looks like your child. Why don't you just take this one as a form of adoption, but never tell your wife, <laughs> just hold this secret. I mean, this thing's already like morally just getting off on the wrong foot. <laughs> there's a lot, like you said, a lot happening in there. Mm-hmm. If Gregory Peck is our hero, right? The protagonist. Mm-hmm. Boy, he's got feet of clay because this Christ and subconscious in this moment, he fails drastically. Big time. Could you imagine? Yeah. Your wife miscarries. Well, it doesn't really, but we think at this point it's been a miscarriage. Yeah. And you replace that without telling her just because on the happenstance that they mostly look alike. Mm-hmm. That's we, We're troubled. It's 
interesting. Most people would be like, oh, no way would you ever do something like that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like as a husband, as a father, sometimes one of the worst feelings is when you know something that is going to completely crush a family member, your kids, sure. especially or mm-hmm. something like that. Whereas, you know, you, yeah, you don't want to lie to them, but you don't want to see them go through that pain. So, I mean, the parents that like quickly switch out the hamster that died for another one and mm-hmm. make up the, oh, uh, you know, that type of thing. So you think who would do that? But if you've been through those kind of experiences and you know, the total devastation that could hit them, then mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know if I could actually do something like that like he did but i mean i I get the feeling of not wanting to crush his wife in that moment as he makes a decision we tried to kind of what we were watching kind of pinpoint where uh gregory peck where robert thorne kind of falls in spiritually and i kind of got the impression that he was maybe more agnostic than a christian man being that you know you we kind of joked it says does he not know what 666 means Mm -hmm. maybe that's just kind of not in his purview of kind of like what he comes across well, if the road to hell is paved with good intentions, then this is the first cobblestone on that path. And I think this is where Gregory Peck really works well for me. When Gregory Peck is in a loose and relaxed state, he's one deviation away from austere. <laughs> he's the guy that comes home out of his three-piece suit, and when he gets into something comfortable, it's like a button-down, a pair of pleated slacks, and a cardigan with some penny loafers. Mm-hmm. There's no dress down to him. And so when you present him as, we don't know quite yet, but a political diplomat you, you aspiring. Mean, you mean Gregory Peck wouldn't wear that Guns N' Roses shirt you got on? <laughs> yeah, he would not have a Guns N' Roses shirt on, no. He's so buttoned-down or so buttoned, sorry, I should say buttoned up, mm-hmm. It walls himself in in a protective, almost like cocoon that I think walls him out from reality. Like you guys just said, who the hell doesn't know what 666 is? If you're agnostic or atheist, you still know. Where have you been living? Mm -hmm. Well, in Buttondownville, stuck in political land. Yeah. And I buy him completely in this, in this role, because he is so cloistered that's the word that's, I want. That's he's good. so cloistered in his austere appearance that there's an almost naive impenetrable shield that it creates around him and it's evident in this you would have to be a prize lunatic <laughs> to take the offer yeah that that priest gives you and by the way did either of you guys think that that adoption hospital place looked like a fucking kennel <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of shady stuff going on in that sequence the nuns the priest himself are you off put by this, Jesse? A little bit, yeah. Talk to me. What's getting you about it? Well, it's just, yeah, morally we're getting off on the wrong foot here, so we have to hold and har- harbinger this secret for years now be- yeah. between the wife, but then born under all these suspicious circumstances, it's not until later where it really starts to really kind of get uncomfortable, but you're right. He's our protagonist. He's making a very question, but that makes him flawed too, oh, and yeah. then I appreciate his kind of turnaround that he makes throughout the film to kind of come along to, I want Damien to die too. Like it, the both parents kind of come around like, I don't want to be anywhere near that boy anymore. Like he, the, the kid goes from like, like zero to like 60, like w- with the introduction of like Mrs. Baylock. But yeah, it is, it is troubling again, accompanied by that music. And I think, and I want to ask you too, Rob, um, about what you think about Gregory Peck in this film. Matt and I were talking 
Gregor Peck's probably one of the with the last of like the cl- what I consider like the classic film actor, other than like Catherine Hepburn, Henry Fonda on Golden Pond films like that, to really kind of keep going into the seventies and eighties. And he had even kind of semi-retired before he got into this. And I think his presence adds some legitimacy to the film. Like, like how did they get like Gregory Peck to be in this? antichrist movie like i think having his name in there is uh, a benefit and i think he's pretty good at his role too what do you think rob i i like gregory peck in this and i feel like it like you said it gives it some legitimacy because he kind of commands respect in that role and so it takes the film instead of just being like a horror film you would have an audience that's willing to go watch it because gregory peck was in this so you know it yes it's horror and stuff like that but it is also it's it's taken more seriously with him as mm-hmm. as the actor in that, so you can't just classify it just as horror, I mean, suspense, anything else. I think it was a good. And it, it reminds me of of Jimmy Stewart. I mean, I mean, when we did yeah. the, the episode on Vertigo, we talked about what a strange role for him to do. It's so different, and I feel the same with the Robert Thorne role. I mean, this is Atticus Finch. This is arguably the greatest film character of all time. Good natured, good hearted human being. And then we get this, and his first move is okay, let's take this kid. I'm going to lie to my wife. Like, what is going on here with Peck? But I think it's good. And then the the following ensuing montage that we get, I find this pretty creepy. In order to speed up the years, we do still, Matt, you know how I feel about still photography in, in movies. Uh, we get still shots on the aging of the boy set to happy birthday to you. Ugh, gosh, I don't like stuff like that. It gives me the heebie-jeebies. Really effective way to pass time, but then create that awkward, uneasy feeling in there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. You know, something in the opening scene of that that stood out to me watching it this time, I haven't seen it for uh, maybe 20 years or so, mm-hmm. um, was the parallel between... Thorn and Joseph in the like the Christmas story, the birth of Christ, because mm. you have the father, and especially when the priest said to him, Tonight, you know, God has given you a son, <laughs> because Joseph was not the father, right? And it was mm-hmm. Mary the Virgin, and so God was the son of that. So now all of a sudden you have, I mean, the son of God and the son of Satan, both of them, and you have a father who knows it's not his own, but then is going to be responsible for caring for that and stuff. So I thought the parallel between the to- two of those was really cool. Excellent. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah. Good catch, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so then we're, we're treated to this this birthday party. He's about five years old now. His father's, you know, they're pretty wealthy. He's the amb- the, the ambassador, ambassador of, of, of Britain to the United States. Got himself set up pretty nicely. This is a great birthday party. I always like that little kind of, like, mini coaster thing, like, on the tracks. And, like, that's a pretty cool. I wish I had that at my birthday party. Yeah. I guess Pistol Pete's didn't have that. <laughs> uh, but uh, it all leads up to this moment. First of all, those kids would be scarred for the rest of their lives. But there's a lot of like memorable stuff I find from this movie. But this moment, probably, I think everyone probably remembers this specific. It's all for you, Damien. Boom. Like, and just no emotion from this kid. Like, like, what do you think? I want to talk about the scene, but what do you think of 
little Harvey Stevens as Damon. I think he's not asked to do a lot, but when he what he is told to do, I think he's pretty good at it. <laughs> yeah, I thought about that some too. Like, what exactly directorial um, information he was able to sort of decode and put into whatever it turned out on cinema. And I think they mostly just said, "Just go be a little kid. Just you be <clears> a kid." And it's really evident in that scene you talked about where he's at the park and they're going down that makeshift roller coaster mm-hmm. and he goes by the camera and he's kind of looks scared, <laughs> but looks like a regular kid. Mm-hmm. Right after that nanny kills herself, that dog shows up and that's the first time Damien acknowledges that dog. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me if Damien knows prior to seeing that dog what exactly his purpose is. And if he doesn't, why is it chosen to done through the dog? Because we talk about a jackal later. I guess you can't have a jackal running around. That would be strange. <laughs> but does the dog's appearance, because that's that's an important part of the movie. These dogs play a big role in this film. Yeah. Do they light the fuse or incite the, the flames inside Damien that are anti-Christial and they're just dormant? Or is he cognizant of it? I'm not sure, yeah, and I don't even know if Damien knows, because he's pretty much a normal, regular kid from the little bit that we have until that. And then he gives that little wave to the dog after the nanny has just done herself in. And I don't know if Damien's that much different, and that's more about acting range, I think, than it is writing. But I'm curious if the dog is what gets that going. Interesting. What do you think, Rob? I think, well, first I was wondering about the parents of the kid you know they can your your son will be perfect for the son of satan i know how you feel how do you sign off on that yeah thank you um yeah maybe it's because i've seen it but that's you know the kid i think he's perfect for the role um and how he doesn't talk in that i think i would have liked to seen that played up more especially toward the end of it when he does say his final lines um i mean the only time he ever talks in the entire movie is that as i recall unless he did but is you know at the end in the, Daddy. in the church there. Yeah. Um, but I that, think that's right. I think that does. is with the, the nanny, that's the most iconic scene of the movie. When I told my wife that we're going to be, you know, watching this and discussing it, that was the one thing she said, it's all for you. And mm-hmm. so I'm in the one line. So I think most people remember that from it and watching it this time, I thought that the, I thought she was in on it initially. I mean, I thought she was a part of that, but now watching this, it's a, she seems kind of jealous and possessive of him, but it's not until she looks at the dog and they have that moment of staring at each other. Then she goes up and actually does that. I thought that was kind of cool because everything has to fall into place in order for this to happen. So sure. she's got to be taken out some way. Um, and with that one, cause you don't expect that the other, the other deaths it's, you kind of see them coming and realize what's going to happen. But I think that one completely catches you off guard. Cause you have no idea where that's going to come from. But. And enter Mrs. Baylock who, Apart from her horrendous bangs that she has, this woman has a pair of very striking eyes. Like, yikes! Great teeth, <laughs> great <laughs> teeth. But yeah, I was, I was she the governess. I, I was getting kind of like uh, innocence and Rebecca vibe from this woman. This kind of uh, siren of hell. This kind of per- sent here to, to to protect kind of a thing. She's kind of like like an Obi Wan Kenobi, but like for like the antichrist to kind of like be there to kind of oversee, to make sure everything, like you said, falls into place. I feel like we're playing a game at this point and 
all these pieces are like pawns on a chessboard. The dogs, the the servants here, the the believing of the first nanny, even the the priest, and especially the priest we see later, who essentially kind of ordered this whole thing. I mean, they're all kind of up to no good. Is is kind of my by 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 a higher power. She looks the part. Yeah, that governess is a great role for women mm-hmm. villains in film, isn't it? Mm-hmm. From you know. Taming of the Shrew, not Taming of the Shrew, Turn of the Screw to Rebecca to this, that governess role. And I think it has a lot to do with the repression elements in it and then what they repress. Like to me in this film, as crazy as it sounds, I made a couple comments when we were watching. The clothing choices in this film are really important to me. Lee Rimmick is dressed way too... I don't want to say garishly, but way too pretty for Gregory Peck. And she almost, to me, feels a little bit gold diggery. Because mm. there's no way he would pull that. There's no way. <laughs> he couldn't. Unless he had a lot of money. Let's be frank about it. Gregory Peck isn't locking down Lee Rimmick in 1977. There's no way. Or 76. Talked about the hound's tooth clothes, like jacket that he wore. Right? Anyway, so I was, I was paying attention to that. And with her, the governess, boy, she is just as like, Locked down, and all of those things end up working as almost a suit of armor for the characters the way I see it. And it just makes her all the more formidable. When she shows up and is so well-versed in what the family is and what happened to the nanny and from the agency and has all the talking points, I want to take Gregory Peck and shake him. Mm Mm-hmm. And say, when is the alarm going to go off, buddy, that maybe something's off here? But he's so cloistered and repressed and singular and focused that he can't see past what's happening. And so you get a perfect scenario played out to hide in plain sight as you raise the devil. Yeah. And you're getting paid for it in a mansion. <laughs> you get to live in a cushy mansion. Sweet gig, man. Good for the governess. <laughs> Good Mrs. for Blaylock. Mrs. Baylock. Yeah. Excellent. Those damn Satanists are freaking entrepreneurial, aren't they? Yes. Damn it. And then enter. So then we got a couple other things going on here. So yeah, we talked about Jennings. So Jennings is this, David Warner is this photographer who's been kind of taking pictures at the birthday party and then at Thorne's office and he's kind of snapping uh, pictures of all these people. And then as he goes and develops some notices, these irregularities like within the, the, the film and like the, the, this like spike going through, through this priest, which is going to come up. But as I told you earlier, I mean, we, we might scoff and laugh at that now, but like prior to that, I don't think I'd ever seen premonition through a flash photography. And that's almost become an overused trope in horror films, whether it's the ring or, Final destination. I mean, it's been done to death now, but this is kind of like a new plot mechanism for the film. Back then, it was. It's been done. It's been. It's been done to death so much that it's even devolved into the creepy picture that the little kid draws with. Here's my family, and here's me, and here's the thing at the end of the line holding my hand that looks like a monster. <laughs> it's another version <laughs> of the mo- same thing. What movie is that? Is that I pick one? Is that Insidious? Or it's a bunch of them. Like it's on the wall. It's all the little kids drawing. I mean, that's almost as overplayed as. Look, the toys are playing by themselves in the TV room, right? We see it all the time. Mm-hmm. The monkeys crashing the cymbals. Exactly. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. So, but 1976, bit of a new idea. Sure. 
I think it plays well. It's interesting, like, huh, maybe that's just a blemish in the film. And then as it sort of sets it up, when the photographer presents his version and it's through his head, you're like, oh, my God, that's not like an impaled job through, like, your side. That's fucking decapitation. And he caught another one on the, on the nanny, too. It's mm-hmm. almost kind of like mm-hmm. a noose ap- aspect to, to that ph- photography. Uh, yeah, what, what do you think? What do you think of this? Do you think this is a nice way to kind of hint at? And we get it three times too. <laughs> yeah, I like it because it's not significant. I mean, it seems insignificant at first. Mm-hmm. You know, this this line, and if you haven't seen the film, then you don't understand what it is. But it plays out perfectly, and I like how he does that with the priest first, and we don't see it with <laughs> the nanny until afterward. Then he goes back and looks at it. Because mm-hmm. um, I mean, had there been something with the nanny first, I think it would have been too too obvious leading into that one. So then looking back on it, that it is there and sets it up perfectly for his decapitation mm-hmm. at the end of that. Yep. Which like you said, yeah, I, as a kid, that was always, you know, if I heard about some horror movie, that was always my, did anybody get their head cut off? Cause I was like, to me, that was, that was the ultimate way of, of dying. You know, that was like the scariest thing at mm-hmm. that point. So I, I like the idea, like what you just said, that this is, decapitation this isn't something stabbing you or anything else like that it's done Mm -hmm. we have this discussion a lot rob so what was your sneaky version of being able to see this movie way too young there's got to be a story here um we had hbo Ah. cable and (laughs) a guy that was supposed to be babysitting he was the brother of one of my friends um Feel an irresponsible you, babysitter you, you, story coming on here. Guys yeah. the and so, I mean, wind up watching it because it was always, you know, they never played the R-rated movies before 9 o'clock at that mm-hmm. time. Now they play them at, you know, 10 in the morning or whatever. But um, so you had to wait. So I remember looking at that, looking at the guide and seeing that there was going to be a scary movie. Um, my first R-rated movie was Little Darlings. Oh, my gosh. Um, and I, <laughs> wow. I remember thinking like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to see this. And, and talk about a letdown of an R-rated movie. <laughs> I was going to say, really? But, uh, yeah, but it was kind of, I think it was like that. I did see it without my parents realizing that I saw it. Yeah. Um, because of this guy who was supposed to be taking care of me that, well, didn't. But to irresponsible babysitters. Absolutely. Yeah. Opening the door to whore. Our own version of the governess or <clears throat> governor. It was different because I was like an only child. So I had HBO too. So I would always have my finger on like the, the, previous channel button so that if like my mom like, oh, yeah. know, like came in the room <laughs> and then like what are you watching oh, i don't know oh, I'm nickelodeon watching, you're watching nickelodeon disney channel it was really on like hbo so thank no, god for previous channel <laughs> your parents got cool about it though and eventually acquiesced to your demands to see this and started kind of uh, feeding that little a little bit and I, I, could, I, I could get them to watch certain horror films and we there was definitely i i, I remember this probably the last time i saw the movie and it's probably why i haven't seen it since because it like affected me considerably it was like one of those like summer like 2009 like one of those like you got nothing on a summer afternoon like like a june thursday evening so i popped this on and we watched it and i was i was watching i was like oh my god like this like this is like so it, it was just like really affecting me and especially the end when you get him looking at the camera and then that the bible verse from revelations and you get the music again and i'm like jesus christ like yeah. like yeah no pun intended but like it was like really profound and i was like like I know people talk about the omen as like, but obviously they talk about the exorcist first and for good reason, but I feel like this film deserves to be kind of part of that conversation. I mean, it, it, the main component is Damien, the antichrist, and he's very 
seldom involved in a lot of he's but a tiny conduit of what this story encapsulates it's a lot of it's a domesticated family story it's um a lot of it's a moral tale with what uh robert thorne's doing and holding back these secrets i think it's a catholic kind of cover-up movie where like they pawned off this kid into this family because he was in a position of power in rome on the sixth like all the stars kind of fell into place and yeah, when I watched it that time, I was like, "Yikes!" I, I haven't seen it since. And but yeah, that was that was kind of like the last time I saw that. It was about ten years ago. You two spoke about it earlier. The legitimacy that Gregory Peck lent to this film, <clears throat> as much as this movie is a horror movie, it's based in domestic ideas, adoption, paternal maternal roles, the influence of the church, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And for all of the moments that are classic horror or terror moments, the number of domestic conflict moments far exceed that. Look, there's even, I have a new job. We have to pack up and move. Am I going to go with my husband or not? Am I going to tell my wife the secret? Because her knowing the truth is going to destroy her. And frankly... This little kid kind of looks close enough. I mean, again, that is a wild leap. But sitting here in this room, you all cannot look me in the face and say, yeah, there hadn't been a thing or two that maybe I decided it'd be better to shh about. Yeah. So I we're have getting- never done that ever. <laughs> <laughs> so we're getting a relatability on a personal level that is familiar. I'm not going to birth the Antichrist in the world, and we've had that discussion with Rosemary's Baby a lot. So mm-hmm. that's not my buy-in. Yep but all of the other stuff and then using Gregory Peck, whether it be Cape Fear, and I would argue Sam Bowden is is equally a bad dad in that as he is in this, mm-hmm. or any of the, even Spellbound to a certain extent. We talked about that movie, which is a, I think, terrible Hitchcock film, but nonetheless, yeah. the large, vast filmography that is Gregory Peck and the father knows best role that he seems to be so capable of mm-hmm is so bastardized in this movie. Oh yeah. That it just creates such unease among all of us. If dad's broken and dad is the best knowledgeable and most capable character, guys, I'm going to tell you the family's fucked. (laughs) It is. And then it gets even more complicated. Yeah, because you said my wife is in danger. She is pregnant. You're mistaken. That's nonsense. He will not allow the child to be born. He will kill it while it slumbers in the womb. What in God's name are you talking about? Your son, Mr. Thorne. The son of the devil. He will kill the unborn child. Then he will kill your wife. And when he is certain to inherit all that is yours, then, Mr. Thorne, he will kill you. That's enough! And with your wealth and power, he will establish his counterfeit kingdom here on earth, receiving his power directly from Satan. You're insane. He must die, Mr. Thorne! You asked for five minutes, and you've got five minutes. Go to the city of Megiddo. See Bukenhagen before it's too late. So, as we were kind of talking about when we were watching it, the wife's pregnant, and this priest, this Catholic priest is like, you gotta, you gotta you got to kill that child. Like you can't let that child be born. Like is the Catholic church, like promoting abortion in this circumstance or you're like, what's going on here? But Gregory Peck is really steadfast. And again, in a very morally 
complex way is saying, I'm going to make sure this kid's born no matter what. And then Lee Remick's already saying, I don't want the child, Robert. Like, like Damien's already acting really weird. And I'm like really on edge with like how he's been acting. I don't want another child. And so it just becomes a, a total disaster <laughs> coming up here. Rob, what'd you think about Father Brennan? At first, I mean, I thought he he's not going to convince anybody. He shows up in his office the first time. He and, looks drunk. Yeah, and he starts been you know, smoking weed for the last forty days. Yeah, yeah, super red eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, comes in and tells him, you know, starts telling him he needs to accept christ right there and stuff which okay yeah he's a priest that does that but i mean there would be a more subtle way of convincing him (laughs) if he told him something like you know i know the child is not yours so that it makes him start to listen to that but he goes off immediately on what sounds like just this uh psychotic rant that he goes on um so i was thinking uh that just isn't that's not believable to me in that role but then later when they talk about him having cancer and that he's been on morphine and stuff so then okay it makes it more acceptable i get that he's not going to be um the most reasonable when he comes in trying to convince somebody of something that sounds so bizarre um i like the role though Mm -hmm. it reminds me of the you know the guy on the street corner that's preaching and screaming about um it's the end of the world yeah armageddon coming you have to have this character that's like he's the crazy kook that like has some truth to what he's saying but like he presentation wise no one's ever going to believe him. That actor's name is Patrick Trotton. Mm-hmm. And when he first appears, it's actually in Peck's office. And, boy, he comes in looking bad. So that is paid off with maybe the challenges he's facing with his battle with cancer and other health issues. Rob, I want to talk about what you just said there, and that's the pitch to try to get Gregory Peck to recognize who his son is. There's a lot of different ways to a path with God. To protect yourself and your family, I suppose. Not a preacher, but man, the least effective upon first meeting is you got to eat the flesh and drink the blood. Like who's the good guy and who's the bad guy and what exactly are we talking about? Mm -hmm. And not only do you need to do that, but you need to do it every single day. And you have this guy coming in that looks like a damn zombie. Given that to you, it's an impossible sell for Father Brennan. And I think Peck responds appropriately with like, get this guy out of here. Mm-hmm. But the seeds planted, right? Yeah. He's at least thinking about it and like, oh, maybe. I mean, there's different things. Like you can offer your life to a life with Christ. You can repent. There's a lot of different ways that he can go about trying to get this family to protect themselves or insulate themselves from the nefarious deeds of, of the devil. I just don't think that's the best sales pitch. And it works and is done on purpose, obviously. Sure, yeah. But it does undoes everything he's trying to do. And then this is it. This is the the Peck character in a nutshell, right? He calls in security in this quaint, buttoned-up office where there's not a pen out of place because something now is amiss with the aesthetic of how it looks and feels. That's been him the whole movie, and it will be him the whole movie. He is out of place if Cary Grant didn't have as much charm as he did, he would be Gregory Peck in this film. Mm-hmm. And when that crazy guy comes in and essentially pitches him on the purposes of cannibalism to insulate his family from the Antichrist, there's no way that that dog's not going to hunt. And then coming up here, he's going to meet his untimely death by church spire spear. 
And so then that's the end of him. So any valuable information we could have gotten was literally the clues or the info in the two scenes we just talked about, that one and then in the one I just played. Let's do that scene for a minute. Can we do that now or you want to wait a minute? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do the, is it Bishop's Park? Yeah. What do you think of all the influx of like sudden weather in that? I love it. Do you love it? What do you think, Rob? I like it too. Um, I feel about that. I would wonder what the other people that are around are thinking of this bizarre wind that kicked up all of a sudden, but we're Mm -hmm. only following him. Um, I don't makes you feel like he's, this is bigger than, Mm -hmm. than just some, you know, random accident is going to happen where you understand that there's a greater power that is kind of guiding them or is going to control the fate of it. I was wondering, they always, after they give the information, that's when they die and not as they're about to give the information. So, Mm -hmm. I guess Satan was a little bit slow on knocking them off uh, before they could spill the beans on a lot of those. But I, I like the scene. It's kind of exciting and how he's trying to get into the church first with the gate. It's the locked. church he won't have him. Yep. Yeah. And it's kind of like almost mocking him. There's no hope for you. Mm, that's good. At this point while you are trying to get in here to uh, safety, but it's not coming, buddy. Again, that exterior that is the shield that you have to break through to get any help in your efforts to fend off Damien. And the church does the same thing to its envoy of that message. And I understand the premise of the the body and blood of Christ. I, like, I get it. Trust mm-hmm. me. Like, I, I'm not just like, oh, it's cannibalism. Like, it is, in fact, but it's done on a non-secular level and spiritual, so you buy it off in that metaphor. Uh-huh. So, But it's still creepy. And even was creepy as me as, for me as a kid. But this guy has served his church faithfully for, I don't know, a number of years, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And when he needs it most, he rejects like him. The aberration that yep. cannot be, it's unholy. And death by church. It's a piece of the church that ends up killing him. So that's troubling, Jesse. That is troubling. <laughs> <laughs> and it just sticks him in the ground like that, like a lawn dart. Yeah. It's almost crucified, isn't it? A little bit, just about. So the movie starts moving pretty fast right now. So, you know, Peck's like, "Ah, I got to get home. Like, I got to, I can't let anything interfere with this because someone told me that someone's going to try and stop this, this birth and this child from happening. So then we get this next sequence. couple things creepy kids on tricycles great horde trope again i don't think i had seen this prior because this is before the shining so eh, maybe even the omen introduced this aspect but i want to talk about so as she's kind of knocked over the railing here and kind of hanging on for dear life and then she falls laughable as it may be i love that little optical effect of her kind of twisting around on this thing and as she hits because that's an actual stunt that lee remick can perform because she's not actually falling it's all forced perspective like i i love stuff like that yeah it looks great uh the biggest stephen king fan in the room is sitting here to my left Mm. rob square this with danny torrance on the tricycle in the shining break it down he stephen king a thief the 
like in The Shining with Danny Torrance, that was a big wheel, right? That he was riding through yep. that and stuff. So you know something. It, it's such an innocent, innocent toy, or I mean, child's mm-hmm. vehicle, basically, to get around and stuff like that. And so it's hard to think of something horrible happening with that. So I like the, um, it, it's just this harmless child that's riding that. And then it's ultimately the cause of, um, well, the death of the sibling that would be, um, as it was predicted, and then sets the mother up for where she's going to wind up dying because she has to be in the situation that she's in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you, you still have this innocent child, but then the sinister music that's playing, and it leads into, I mean, perfectly, you expect it, though. I kind of wish it wasn't quite so obvious. I wish she would have pulled the the stool over that she stands on kind of at the last second, so you don't quite get it. You see he's doing this, and you don't realize what's going to happen. It still remains kind of innocent until like right at the last second if she pulls that over reaches up and then he hits it at that point Mm -hmm. um so you don't see it quite coming as much and i like the effect where she's standing there looking at him as if he can't help in any way you know she cries out to him as if he's going to help her but just how he's sitting there looking and there seems to be no no emotion no panic nothing on the kid and right there is i think the first time that you really get a feeling of yeah this kid is really evil not so, just the misunderstanding, the nanny doesn't get that, you know, why she did that. But this one, yeah, the kid is evil and it's very chilling seeing the mother right there and how she falls also. It takes a long time for her to fall, mm-hmm. which if you, I don't know, have ever fallen or jumped off of a cliff into a lake or something like that, often it, it feels like forever before you actually hit the water. So I like how they kind of play that out until she hits the floor. And then, yeah, they could have done a lot of gratuitous gore with that and have blood coming out, you know, like more and especially at the end of it when she goes through the ambulance and winds up dying then oh, she yes. could do that as well yeah she had a problem with gravity um <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah but you know just the subtle little bit of blood that comes out of her mouth at that point um i think it was a perfect effect for that oh yeah would you guys uh, that, that's enough yeah like i said I, I i've always really liked this scene i like the silent nature of damien because it almost seems just accidental even though it looks pretty like with malicious intent but again, I like how she falls over the railing like that. I like that there's no music. It's all kind of just sound in that quiet space that they're left to kind of play with and the swinging uh, uh, flower pot. I mean, there's a lot of elements at play there and it's um, it all just happens so quietly. And then get, say goodbye to Damien because Damien's not going to show up again until he gets a haircut at the end of the movie. Like everything else is the forces to keep this kid alive by any means necessary. Can I sour mash that scene for just a second? Go ahead, yeah. When he's going around the room on the tricycle and we're getting the dizzying effect as we watch his feet feet turn over the pedals and the wheels turning, 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 turning. I wish he didn't go down the hall and knock her over. I just wish it was the dizzying effect and the acknowledgement of that between him and the witness Blaylock mm-hmm. and then watching Remick on that stool. And she just kind of falls just over. on her own. Mm. And then the minute she topples, he stops. Because we get there anyway. Yeah. Oh, that would be pretty interesting. And it's backwards. Like, my argument's sort of backwards on that because I feel like it makes me think that Kubrick's a bit of a thief because Danny Torrance in The Shining is essentially replaying this whole moment mm-hmm. to me. I don't have proof on that. It's yeah. just. And again, it, it, that scene, they both work. I'm not saying either one of them don't work. Mm-hmm. I just think if you, for me, I just think for me, God, come on, Matt. If you take... <laughs> If you take the dizzying effect of the wheel and use it, it expands the reach 
of how far Damien can get you. And we've seen that before. If a priest can be struck down by lightning and leaves <laughs> and impaled in the middle of not nowhere, but sure. with no one around, then it, it fits a narrative that they've already built. But again, the scene's not broken. It's not oh, yeah. bad. I just, I, I wish it was that other way. I like that, but I think I like him being there in the moment too. I get that too. Yeah, there's no way he could help, but the fact that he can't, he doesn't offer any emotion or physical response to his mother about to like fall, but to her death, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's troubling for me for the little boy. He plays it well. The screen directions. Okay. Look down at her. Okay. Now run, now run down the hallway. And I get it. Like, like he's, he's doing, he's doing his job. Well, do we have any idea at that point about how far into the pregnant she, she is? Uh, I don't think so. Trimester. Maybe, maybe. I I think what could work with that also, because she steps on that when, I mean, she didn't just stand on the stool, the little bench. There's like a doily or something on that also, Mm -hmm. which, yeah, as soon as she see, I'm like, Oh, come on, genius. You're going to slip right off of that thing. Whereas if he, I mean, if she, he doesn't hit her, but she falls and as she's hanging there, that's when he kind of rides up on the tricycle and looks at her still on the tri. You know, he still has that right there while she's hanging. I think that could have worked as well. Mm-hmm. There's any number of ways to do that scene. It like, still works. Like you, it, said, it, like it you works. said, like the scene's not broken, but yeah, there's a lot of that you can play with there. But boy, she, she's broken after this, isn't she? <laughs> she's literally broken. Her Hand up for the rest of the damn film. Arm broken. She's in church. Yeah, it's just <laughs> a mess. That, that, uh, I lost the baby. From, yeah. from from the fall. So now Robert's like, I, I got to figure out what the hell is going on here. So enter Jennings, enter the photography, which is now going to become the mechanism to propel us into the, the next uh, half of the film. As they investigate the old priest, and man, he had a crazy setup of all these crosses and Bible pages um, with a little slit open so he'd have a view of the church to kind of come into the window there. But really trying to ward off something horrendous. And then they go to the hospital where he was born back in Rome. And they're like, oh, the hospital burnt down. And the fire started in the records room. So any record of this child has long been ashes. My favorite part's that elevator that those nurses get on. <laughs> like, Mind the gap. Can you imagine how many people got hurt riding that thing that got like, they didn't get their arm out in time and it got like crushed? Yeah. <laughs> You almost think that it's set up for something that could play out a little bit more, and they almost don't use it, huh? Oh, I never noticed that until this time, because what we know foreshadowing-wise now is David Warner's Jennings has this slit across his neck that he caught in the reflection of the mirror. And there is a lot of alluding to, there's a lot of empty space being played with that, where's this guy going to get it? Maybe there. And even that scene, and it's like a nothing scene, because they're just talking about the Bible passages at some little off the road little gas station eat drink an espresso and there's like a lot of space in between the middle of them maybe is something gonna come in enough room to have something fit through there yeah something gonna happen there and then when they're walking up to the cemetery and as it kind of like the way it's kind of i think they really try and toy with we're gonna hold hold back as long as we can to kind of uh, see what happens with Jennings, but we're going to tease you a lot along the way. Well, and when they're in that underground room, speaking to the guy who's going to give them the blueprint on how to do in Damien, he peeks out from underneath that buttress and that debris almost falls on his head. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're priming you for that. Like you stick your head out and a brick falls and that's good as decapitation as yeah, any. You're done. What do you guys think? Okay. So we've reached the point in the film. We've located the priest that kind of, created this little adoption scenario uh, five years ago and he got burnt in the fire. He's like two face now. 
and monotone like he's he's all he's all messed up at this little kind of seminary thing what did you guys kind of think of that like is that that seems kind of troubling to me it's like this like halfway house for like priests that are like not dead but like mentally imbalanced and they're all wearing black which is uh, what's going on there man on their knees praying Mm -hmm. despite them walking right through the middle they don't move yeah it's hard to say in this film that there's a lot of light that religion provides it's almost as terrifying. Mm-hmm. Even the priest's room yeah. that's been wallpapered with Bible pages and about 100,000 crosses. It's almost like you see why the church didn't want to let him in because maybe that dude was just such a mess. He was going to screw things up even worse. Sure. Yeah, there's no light that religion offers for yeah. the believer or non-believer versus the forces of darkness in this movie. It's as terrifying to me as Damien is. Mm-hmm. At least Damien's a cute little kid. There's nothing cute, little anything about religion in this film, regardless yeah. from weed smoked eyes to that bit on Bishop's Park where like, is he crying? Why is like, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's presented harshly and ugly. And like I said, there's no light coming. There's no forgiveness mm. with, cause both of the priests, I mean, they were a part of the entire thing. The first one was there at the birth. He witnessed it and stuff. And then he was trying to repent at the end, but obviously there was no forgiveness for him. And then this other priest, the one that gives him the child at the beginning of it, he also is like now all of a sudden trying to backtrack on that, but he is stuck in this position where he's, I mean, mutated on his face. His piercing (laughs) eyes are no longer piercing at that point. Um, Yeah. So they, they made their decision early on and it's almost like the, uh, the old testament version of like the wrath of god type of thing rather mm-hmm. than like the uh, the christian part of with the new testament where there's the forgiveness and stuff and all you have to do is ask and you know yeah it doesn't work out that way for these guys Ooh, good yeah i like iron that. brimstone versus <laughs> literally new testament you're uh-huh. right all right let's get to one of the big moments of the film which is this cemetery sequence here i like it it's obvious to me that this is just like a little soundstage kind of made up, but like, I like how they set decorated. I mean, these trees, the, like the look of the coast, uh, like behind them, these, these gravestones. And then the, the first person POV of something watching them. And then as they get into to the gravestone, they, 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 they find the mother and it's a jackal, <laughs> it's, which was alluded to earlier. Like I, I laid eyes on the mother, Mister Thorne. It was, uh, and then he's interrupted by the security guard back at his office. And he wasn't going to say. I always want to say because it's like a jackal, and I always kind of associate a jackal as a hound of hell. Is yeah. it's, it's kind of like a demonic uh, type of uh, association. And it's there in the mother's grave, and as they let the tombstone, it just shatters into it. Like oh. It's, there's a lot going on here. To compare a human to a dog is not a compliment. Duh, right? When you call someone a son of a bitch, like yep. you're basically saying birth from a dog. Mm-hmm. Jackal's less than dog. So the reveal of that jackal skeleton in the tomb is really, really awful. Yeah. Like it is birthed from a vehicle that is so dismissible and disregarded from hell. No one cared. And kind of mangy animal. Ooh, yeah. A scavenger, right? Yeah. Yeah. And if that wasn't enough, then we have this. And maybe my child is alive somewhere.
murdered him as soon as he was born. So the situation goes from worse to even worse to worsest. <laughs> like, uh, what the hell is going on here? I mean, did, did someone aborted the real Thorn baby, and then imp and then imp input Damien as the new child. All as a setup. Like, Rob, what's going on here? <laughs> I don't know. They sure. I don't. They use a sledgehammer to kill the baby. That was one massive hole in that. <laughs> baby skull um the whole yeah i mean that that realization of the hope that oh the child is still alive after seeing that is not the child maybe he's hanging around rome here it is yeah um but the again the dogs how they come into that and i was wondering why why four dogs right there because i thought it would have been interesting had you had three of them because uh cerberus in greek mythology is the you know the protector of or for the four horsemen this is true. Yep. Yeah. Um, but then, Matt, when you said, when we went back to the house again toward the end, he had the dog that was there, and you said that's number five right there. So I was thinking, oh, that is five of those, because they, they emphasize that six is the number of the devil. I mean, <laughs> with the that, but just this number itself was. Um, but the mother also is the the jackal. There you go. There's number, like six. number six. As far as the dogs, Ooh, and then the other five are left there. Um, so, I thought, okay, that would work then with the four that are in there. Um, because I was wondering why why four of them in the cemetery that, that and these guys get torn up. Yeah. <laughs> like this is this is like a nightmare. Like I wouldn't like I would just kinda I wouldn't progress past the film. I would have died here. It's a really great shot too that's the bird's eye view. Mm-hmm. And you can see the dog sort of closing in on the two of them. And you see what the geography is and where they can go. There's about one path out of that particular area. And there's three dogs lining it. And you can just see the dogs closing. Getting chased by one Rottweiler is terrifying. Four? Yeah. And you got to scale this. Man, the wrought iron in this movie is in such abundance. But you have to scale this wrought iron with these rusty, jagged spires. <laughs> and I guess Thorn meets him, doesn't he? Yeah, he yeah, impels himself directly on, on on top of one. So as as these guys get out of here with the news that they have, Matt, as we talk about in screenwriting, I mean, this is like the crisis of the film. I mean, like our lead characters are in an even worse spot than they began with, with this terrible plot to implant Damien into the Thorn household, the place of power. Because it was said earlier, too, Jennings said that, um, what did he say? The sea of turmoil? What, what was yeah, yeah. politics? Yeah, that would be the this child would arise in the world of politics. Well, yeah, Mr. Thorne's perfectly set up for it with his nice cushy job. Scholars have deduced from the book of Revelations that the sea of turmoil is the political landscape globally. Opposing armies on each shore. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's in fact what scholars have deduced, but it makes sense in this film perfectly. Yeah. Sure, let's go with that. Yeah. All right. It per- and, and then it, it kind of makes sense on why they would want Damien to go with, with this guy. Yeah. And right. I, and his name's Thorn. I mean, Crown of Thorns. Like yeah. it's like it's got all these heavy religious overtones to it. I think that's the other thing too. Way back to the kids' party. If we're going to have the Antichrist on Earth. A reasonable question is, what's the purpose? Because there's temptation where the Antichrist wouldn't need to be here that would effectively do the same thing in a low-key, just as 
impactful way. Temptation. If the Antichrist is here, it would be for me to spread the influence of the netherworld. Yeah? Well, think about it, and you kind of said it. Mm -hmm. When that that nanny hangs herself at that party, those kids are forever scarred. Yep. So they're already laying the groundwork of the impact the devil or Antichrist is going to have on the human populace, society, human condition, whatever you want to call that. Sure. And it's perpetuated for a larger goal when you apply it to globalism or mm. politics. Yeah. I mean, Jesus, here we go. Yep. Party was a start. I was just, that was the <laughs> flight. Yeah. Okay, we're in the happy hour now, and it's the entire world. It's escalating considerably. Yeah, well said. So then Lee Remick is meets her destiny with gravity once again and she's thrown out the window by miss it what do you guys think of that 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 scene did you kind of get like a little kind of like wedding veil vibe exactly as she's she's trying to kind of take this thing off of her to kind of get out of there man balak comes in with those eyes again is she formidable enough for you two who balak yeah i think so that's i mean physically if yeah, I mean, the whole fighting scene toward the end of it when she's with Thorne and that one, maybe not, but if, if she catches him off, like in that situation. I think she was stabbing him with the scissors, too, uh, mm-hmm. in that in that sequence. Well, Rimmick has still been holding her hand up in class for the better part of a yeah. movie now, so I understand she's pretty limited in what she can do. She's realistic for me, like like formidable in a realistic sense of. Damien's going to have a lot of these nannies throughout his life kind of watching over him. And this is just like, she's got to make sure that like nothing goes wrong on her watch. <laughs> right. So I like it. So, so yeah, we're going to get to the, the, the town now. What is it? McGee? Buggy? Megito. Megito. <laughs> Which is some translation of Armageddon. Yep. Yikes. Yeah. Who this, the hell would choose to live there? I don't know. But it's at the birth of religion, they said, the birthplace of Christianity. So this is like where they decided to to start it off. And you got this guy down there, and he he's kind of got the the, the groundwork of it seems like something they've excavated is these the this knife collection to kind of to kind of do the deed. And so he's kind of well versed in it. And this is what you have to do, Mr. Thorne. And that guy comes back again at the beginning of the of the second film, if I remember uh, correctly. But Again, like Robert's, like he's like I like I, I need to do this, but yeah, I don't, I don't know if I if I can physically because it's still it's still a child, you know what I mean? Like it's it's a, it's still a hard sell. Like no one's convinced him yet. You have to go through with this, but I think he's going to get his convincing here in like two seconds, which is I think we all kind of decided was probably the scene of the film, which is David Warner plate glass gets his head lopped off, like. Like we know the nanny bit, but like when I think of the omen, I, I I remember this bit of his head just kind of flying, tumbling, neck over hair, <laughs> and in as soon slow as you, motion. As soon as you see the the brake or the gear shift of the truck that they had right there when it pops, and you realize, and you're like, okay, here it comes. Because before, you know, you see the the picture with the slash you realize he's going to get decapitated and so off i mean you get to a new scene instead of looking at the characters i mean the viewers kind of like looking around going all right what is it going to be that's going to do this and so at that point i mean there's nothing around them that's going to happen so then as soon as that happened you realize okay here it comes and sure enough then the glass slides off and i want to talk to you guys about something here 
Uh, and I just kind of want your thoughts on kind of like what you think about all this. So this production, much like The Exorcist, like had a lot of things go wrong with it and just kind of like outside of the purview of the actual filming of the film. So both Gregory uh, Gregory Peck's plane and the producer uh, Mace Newfield's plane, they were both struck by lightning on the way to Rome for filming. Richard Donner was sideswiped by a car on the streets of Rome. His hotel was bombed by the IRA while they were filming. And this one's crazy. And I looked in a few different sources to kind of confirm this story. And so far, it, it, it holds up. So Peck was supposed to get on a plane to travel, I think, to the locations there for this sequence we're talking about right now. And he had to cancel and charter a different plane. The plane he canceled on actually crashed when it was like overcome by like some birds and doves like on the runway and it had to kind of reland it like skidded and kind of hit a little hill and then there's like a little like freeway right there and it crashed and it and blew up there and the pilot's family, his wife and like four kids were in a car on the freeway. So the pilot died, the plane exploded, everyone died on the plane, and the pilot's family all kind of went up too. Oh so my gosh. you kind of start thinking, man, we're, we're making a film about these supernatural things, and where, wherever you fall in the belief spectrum, it's, it's really hard when uh, so many circumstantial things happen. Like, man, maybe we're tapping into something we shouldn't be playing around with. Like, like Matt and I have this idea of this demonic possession is 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 film man if that ever gets made like i'm, I'm gonna mm -hmm. write like and from a distance i'm we're not, not gonna be on yeah set. i'm not gonna go be on set of that no way <laughs> no way yeah what do you guys think of all that it, like I, it, it's great because it fuels like that urban legend mentality of a film but man like th that catholic part of me comes out and i'm like yeah maybe you shouldn't be towing around with forces you don't understand i didn't know any of that that's interesting to you yeah to hear, yeah, at some point you go, all right, that's enough, and stop going. That's peculiar. One Whatever more, going wrong. one more that I forgot. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, the like second AD or one of the special effects guys, I can't remember which, but on the next film he made, which I think was a bridge too far, is that Sean Connery? Yep. He was working on it and got into a car accident, and his girlfriend, who was in the seat next to him, was decapitated in that car accident. So much like this sequence we're talking about here. So yeah, there's just a lot of. Yeah, you don't you don't you don't poke the bear. Sounds like too much work to <laughs> The moral of the done. story is don't play with Ouija boards. Yep. And I'm being stupid and and telling a joke, but I'm also not. You shouldn't play with them. But secondly, if you invite that in, look, it's great press. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, that's yeah. you don't see this movie cuz the devil will probably come visit you. Devil? Let's go see that movie. Mm -hmm. Right? But to a larger context, it does do what you just said. And are you sure you want to get in the middle of that, which you can't possibly understand? Because when you come to an understanding, it might be a final understanding. Sure. Are you sure you want to acknowledge those forces? Maybe you're best being simple here. We're going to talk about that about that again when we eventually do at some point in time poltergeist. Because yeah, yeah, same situation. I'd be curious to look into... Peck's background in so far as where he is religiously as a man. Or oh, yeah, that'd be interesting. See, you know, I mean, if I was staunch, I'd, that'd be a hard pass for me on this. 
I would not have stumped. The pitch had to have been incredible to him, like an right. actor of his best Academy Award winning, classic, tr- classically trained Hollywood royalty, actor. Yeah. Hollywood royalty in a film about the end. Like, how do you pitch a guy on that to be in that? But out of retirement, out of retirement, yeah, it's an even. He, he haven't done anything well. What do you think about making this horror flick? I'm not really into horror. Well, hold on a minute. Exactly, <laughs> the meetings that you and I have never had the chance to sit in that we would have liked to. Gremlins two, yeah. Anything having to do with Hangover post one? I mean, we could go on and on. This about- is what I would use a time machine for. Rob is I wouldn't like go like see like all these like historical things. I'd like go sit in board board meetings of, of film productions and say, okay, like whose decision like was this or like yeah, wh- what was the conversation to get? Peck on board. Sitting there looking at each other going, this is about where Amy Pascal ruins her career. Oh, just happened. Yep. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So we get into the the final crux of the film here, and uh, Robert Thorne's a man determined. He's got his set of knives. He's going to go home, but he's got a first check. Is there a way to kind of prove that he would be, you know, branded with the birthmark of the three sixes? So up he sneaks into not the first uh, disposing of the of the rottweiler in there in a nice clever way in the wine cellar it looks like but then upstairs he goes and then as we all joked about man i'd wake up instantly if you're trying cutting my hair in my sleep but he does enough to kind of see that uh that little that little almost like a tattoo but it's like it's like a birthmark and then mrs baylock in full full attack mode here jumps on him Kind of reminded me of the orangutans. Baboons. Yeah. Sorry, baboons from earlier in the same film. You thought the same thing too? Yeah. I don't know if her ass was as red, but go ahead and run with it. Go, Rob. I'll let you go. She tried to spank her, but um, (laughs) she needed a good spanking. Yeah. No, I mean, the only way she can do anything is she grabs on because you can't fight off that if she's grabbing onto his back Mm -hmm. and, you know, except slamming into a wall backwards or something. So, I mean, it worked. That's all she had as far as being able to defeat him until she gets what is the scissors or whatever she's trying to stab him with at the I end. I had of never that. noticed that because, like, he's he was bleeding earlier in the film, but now he's not. He's all bandaged up. And then he has, like, all this blood ever. So she had at some point grabbed him and was, like, sticking him with the. Yikes. And she's she been so, pretty good across the face, too, right yep, off the mm-hmm, bat, doesn't she? Yep, Give yeah. him a good rake. Yeah. yeah, she sure does. Yeah. She's so icy cold you know, and collected all the way through and always has the, the response. Um, like when Mrs. Thorne is wanting them to go to church and, you know, she always has the response mm-hmm. immediately at hand and stuff. And so now her hair was up all the time before. Now this is the one time that her hair is down and there's no calmness or cold. It's just like, she's completely screaming That's and wild at this yeah. point and uh-huh. jumps on his back. So he can't get her off. Excellent. So he grabs Damien. He disposes of Mrs. Baylock in the car, speeding to the nearest church, not before alerting the authorities to like, what the heck is Thorne doing? And he's just speeding around here on the estate, but gets him in the church. And then we get. Please, Daddy, no. No, Daddy, no. God, help me. Please. Stop. Stop on our fire. Is this a worthy conclusion to this story for you guys? I mean, it, it it ends so quickly, like it just like we get there, and then it's like, oh my god, the films the films wrapping up. But for everything that's been set up, have you gotten your payoffs? Do you feel satisfied with kind of you know where we're at here at the end here in this church? I like how it it gets so close to it. I mean, he's almost there, 
And of course, I mean, it, it leads into the police chasing him as he's driving and we see their little light go on on the top of the car and they all start chasing him there. Um, so it sets it up nicely for them to be the ones to actually shoot him before he kills the kid. The one thing that I would, I wish they would have played out him talking at that moment um, because, you know, he hasn't spoken before that until this moment when he says that and his first words. And I wish it would have had, like, maybe the police don't come in quite at that point. But when he says that, then there's the hesitation on Thorne where yep. he's like, he sees this child and, you know, because he said he wouldn't kill the child before until after um, Jennings gets his head sliced off and then obviously at that point he's all set on doing this after he verifies the 666 on his head yep. but at that point waiting a little bit longer the hesitation of is this right can i actually do this could i kill this child and then at that point the police come in so it's just that slight hesitation that makes all the difference right there a little bit more and makes you then also like as a parent especially could you hurt a child like that mm -hmm. even if you know what they turn out to be is there any way that this wouldn't happen um but I like I like him talking at that point too with the pleading with his father because then it kind of makes him feel like a, a small child and a baby instead of yes. this little evil eye glaring kid the entire time. Mm -hmm. Temptation. Yes. Yes. Trying to. What do you think? I don't. It just happens so fast for me. I mean, we get in the church and then like within like fifty seconds, like we're at the the cemetery and. I don't know what I'm expecting because we did kind of get like a battle of sorts with Mrs. Baylock and the dog back at the house. Like he's not going to get into a fisticuffs with Damien here on the steps of the altar. Right. But I think I'm with you. I, I wish I kind of wish there was a little bit more hesitation. And he's shown that throughout the film. But like here in the moment, now it's time to do the deed. And like the guy in uh, Jerusalem there says, oh, you got to this knife's the most important, but you got to stick these other five knives in him, too, and pin him to the altar, essentially. Um, yeah, I don't know if it necessarily works for me either. I, I, I'm kind of left wanting a little bit more. And him getting, getting Damien there, I mean, he just picks him up and he has him under his arm. And mm -hmm. I guess I think back to a time when I had to try and get one of my sons someplace and he was adamant about not going and I was trying to buckle him into the back seat, like just in the car seat. And oh my God, I felt like I'd just been through a wrestling match trying to get this kid buckled up and <laughs> sure. stuff. And I had some woman following me around thinking I was abusing this child. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the child, he's not just going to be carried that easily there like a sack of potatoes until you put him down at that point. I yeah. kind of wish he would drugged him or something to get him there at that point. Um, then he would, could cut the hair away and he wouldn't, you know, be sure. sleeping through all that until the nanny or yeah, screams. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Matt? They have some challenges. There's nobody left to sort of take Damien's cause. And if you make Damien so omnipotent that they can just move things around and set things on fire by the sheer capabilities of their evil mind, then you create kind of the dream sequence at the end of the film, which is just an easy way out. So I don't like that either. Uh, the cops are just so meddlesome and seem so small in the larger context of what this film has been. I just have a hard time. I, I get it. Like I understand how it happens. I guess the answer then is no. It's satisfying and it's an ending and I understand and I'm not left wanting more insofar as the way the movie concludes and you have had the nice bit with the dog and Mrs. Blaylock earlier. So everything you guys have both said on that is absolutely right and I agree. I just don't like the cop coming in and just gunning him down. There has to be more to it than that. Mm -hmm. Essentially, you have a car chase from an embassy. Okay, right. 
would would the cops even really chase him though? They they're familiar with him. Would the cops chase him? I don't. I just yeah. I don't, yeah. I'm not, I'm I'm a little perplexed by that too. Yeah, guns drawn coming into a church. Shoot this guy that was speeding. Again, and I don't want the statue of Christ to come alive, and then <laughs> a picture of Lee Rimmick. You know, like some visionary image of Lee Rimmick walking. You know, all that spectral <laughs> bullshit that doesn't play here either, right? So that's not an out. Sure. I. The priests are gone. There, there, there is nowhere left to go, but that's an element of not setting that up maybe earlier. You know, we've had a lot of questions about the dogs. Four, now five, maybe the six, and I guess that there is a six metaphorically. But if this is some church and he goes in after hours, is it not out of the realm of possibility that they have a watchdog at the church? Oh, that would have been pretty good. And that could just be that thing attacks him. And, and that fits in. I mean, I don't think churches are guarded by dogs. But why not? I don't want the priest to come out. What are you doing over there? But that, you know, there's something there as well. What are you doing to that little? There's, It's it's too abrupt. It's not a huge Abrupt miss. is the correct word. Yeah, that's what I was looking for. It's not swinging on 3-0 with the bases loaded and fouling out in the bottom of the ninth inning down by a run. It's not that big a miss. Mm-hmm but it's taken two old fastball right up the pipe in the same scenario when you could have drilled it. So I'll tell you that doesn't necessarily work for me, but once we get to the cemetery, I'm like back on board yeah, again because right. we have this, um, this gun salute to these two coffins. So we're kind of, a, I guess like I've always kind of alluded to assume that we're supposed to believe that's Robert Thorne and Damien um, and the two there. But as we kind of progress through this sequence and this driver goes up to this man and says, you know, Mr. President, are you ready to leave? And in a few moments. And then as we pan down and we see the child that they have is is Damien. So obviously that's Lee Remick and Robert Thorne's uh, military funeral as an uh, American ambassador. Uh, and the president of the United States is going to take Damien under his wing or find him a suitable home there. And I like that. I like the open-endedness of the movie. And it's a film where the bad guy wins the end of the day. Mm-hmm. After all the, the the trials and tribulation to find the truth, to find the answers, to find a way to stop him, he still carries on. And he's still here. And then we get the Bible verse at the end. And that's the nail in the coffin for me, which is like, yikes, like... Just kind of putting that out there that we know this is fictitious, but this is what the this is what the prophecies wrote in the Bible. Yikes. Like, yeah, that, that gives me a little pause of hesitation. I'm gonna ask you guys a question. Okay. Rob, did you want to add anything to the end of that before I ask you this question? Did you want to run with anything you said there? Um I kinda I like the Bible verse also, as far as that. And the entire idea of this type of a film, possession, um, you know, the second or the coming of the Antichrist and stuff where it's based off of, I mean, most of them are all deal with the Catholicism. You don't have like a Baptist horror movie, really. I mean, (laughs) because Catholicism has all the, all the dogma that goes with it and stuff. But um, I think it'll always be successful because even if people are atheists, if they're agnostic, if they're orthodox, whatever it is, like that expression, there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. You know, you're at that mm-hmm. moment where you're willing to pray suddenly at that point yeah. that we all have that where you see something that if there is a connection to the Bible, especially in Revelation, um, then it's that kind of like, huh, hmm, that is weird. And you kind of have that uneasy feeling of like, what if that actually is what's happening right here? So I think that 
no matter what people's religious views are, these movies um, will always kind of fit and work as horror movies. Go ahead, man. An occurrence or phenomenon believed to portend a future event. Or if you don't like that, an event regarded as a portent of good or evil. Those are two working definitions of omen. Mm -hmm. I think that title doesn't work for me in this film. Really? Because it's not an event. It's a character that is more than event. It might be a series of events. So... Again, I'm not going to bang on the movie for being titled The Omen because it's recognizable and sounds scary. I almost wonder if a better title is just Damien, especially the way the film ends. Could be. Yeah. I th- That title is working for me a little less and less the more I think about it. Just again, and you don't have to be so literary savvy to go, well, that's not what Omen means, Alanis Morissette and ironic. Like mm-hmm. it's, you don't have, I'm not being that guy. I think that there's a better out than that title. If it was, because because what's the event? Is the event the pseudo adoption? Is the event the nanny hanging herself? Is the event the forced uh, demonic abortion? It, what what's the event? Mm-hmm. Is prophecy false prophet? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, th- I think there's a lot of events, if anything. Yeah, uh, and I always kind of see Damien as like less human and more of like an object mm-hmm. as like a conduit of something to come. But I agree with you. Yeah. Damien probably would be a better title. And I actually think that was the working title of the film before they changed it. So that's the omen yeah. is big, right? Bombastic. Oh my gosh. A horror movie called the omen. I like, also think of it plays that as way, like marketing wise, as like a warning, the, an omen being like a warning of, of things to come because he is so young and ideally for him to take full power of what he's supposed to do in revelation, he has to be older. So these are, but the seedlings of what his path is going to become. So I guess I can kind of buy into that a little bit too. You're right though. He is a talisman mm-hmm. again. And I don't think that that's the title for this film either. Okay. The dark talisman. <laughs> like this is okay. Some, Stephen King or Harlequin <laughs> romance, right? <laughs> Lifetime. <laughs> What do, yeah. you think, what do you think, Rob? Yeah, I get it. Um, Damien. It's pretty on I the I think nose. Damien would work. I, they, I wonder how many parents after this movie then refused to name their children Damien. Oh. Um, the thousands. <laughs> or chose to name. Because it would be a portent of good too, fellas. I think you guys are forgetting the good side. Oh, here. this is true. <laughs> what is a family name? Yeah. We'll go with Damon. Yeah. Um, Matt Damon. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, now that you say that and read that, it's like a the occurrences leading up to the omen itself. Like the omen would be the final act of this entire thing. Um, but yeah, this is just a step getting there. But call the first one the omen itself. Yeah, I don't see how it fits exactly as the story is told. People are probably out there rolling their eyes like, oh my God, give me a break. But like film titles are <laughs> really important. <laughs> film titles are really, really important. Of course. So yeah, again... Not really. It doesn't. It, it doesn't. Doesn't change, doesn't, no. doesn't derail the whole film. It's just topic to talk about, I guess. No, that's great. Uh, a couple things uh, here. So, Academy Award winner for best original score. I mean, I think we heard enough like choral in there to really kind of set a tone. So, I I I I, I dig that one. Yeah. And, yet, and I like Jerry Goldsmith, and this was like the only time he ever won. And we're talking about a guy that scored Alien and First Blood and like great films. 
Uh, so yeah, I was glad he was able to kind of finally win one there. Uh, $2.8 million budget. That's not bad for this film that is filmed overseas in Rome and in London for some, and then some pretty elaborate like set pieces too. Did you look up the ROI? Uh, yes. So 60 million domestically and 46 million worldwide. So that's a, yeah, that's, that's a nice little kind of chunk of change for, for a a horror film made by a major studio, which I don't know how Fox convinced Again, The Exorcist had to have had a lot of influence on this decision. Like, that movie was so popular, we got to do something similar to that. Adjusted for rate of inflation, not return on investment, a different ROI. That's a huge, huge score. And look, those numbers are not fully accurate because people still visit this movie and own this and buy this. And Yeah, I just bought that box set with all of them in there. And if you consider what happened with two and three, mm-hmm. two probably made money. I oh, yeah. bet three didn't, but I bet two made money too. And even the remake for, for that was... Like I told you over the phone, I think I was like, that movie was made as like a promotional gimmick. I was like, we have to meet the the June 6, 2006 release date because how can you not pass up that poster? <laughs> exactly. So uh, that's a big win. Yeah, that's that's it's a nice little kind of horror franchise. Um, this is obviously the, the best entry in this in the series. But um, yeah, I got some questions for you guys. So, Rob, as we've done on the show here. Recently, we kind of like to reflect on some things that we really like. So the first thing I'm going to ask here is, who? Uh, what is your favorite tasting note? So our favorite tasting notes in the bourbon, you were tasting some vanilla, some cinnamon. I was tasting like iced tea. But in the film, what's your favorite moment of the film? I'll go first in this one. Um, it's the cemetery bit. I think that's a nicely staged a little sequence there on a, on a sound stage, but it's scored, it's shot. And then the revelations we get in that play out there of the dog and then the baby. And there's just, there's a lot happening there. And then the dog attack is vicious and brutal for, for this film. And like I said, that's the crisis of the film. I mean, we leave there with less answers and more confusion and like kind of dealt a, a striking blow for our protagonists. You want to go next? Sure. I think when Robert Thorne and Jennings connect and Jennings is showing him the pictures and with the late, like what look like the shadows that uh, foretell the deaths of these guys. Um, you know, if you have this crazy thought and it's eating at you and stuff, if you connect with somebody else that kind of has that same feeling, there's this feeling of like, oh, thank God I'm not the only one. And so you have this this connection. I like the bond between the two of them at that point, even though mm. they are virtually strangers, they know nothing about each other. They have this connection there that helps them to move forward um, together. And then it also ends. I mean, it's kind of, there's nothing really scary within that part until you get to the, the picture where it shows Jennings with the, you know, slash through his neck. Looking yeah, like yeah. He's going to get decapitated. Mm-hmm. So then all of you, you're left with an uneasy feeling, but you feel like, okay, they have each other. They can move forward in this then. That priest's quarters is is decorated just so, so, ugh. I'm going to go with the decapitation scene. Mm -hmm. It reminded me of De Palma in The Untouchables a little bit. Mm. Now, that's not a decapitation bit, and I'm talking about the battleship Potemkin homage Mm -hmm. on the stairwell of the train station. Yeah. A lot of people take issue with, but... I think it's shot masterfully well, and mostly Who because... Who takes issue with that? That seems great. It's too slow. Bull. Too over... Well, whatever. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you and me are smarter. I love the untouchable. <laughs> I do, too. Um, the reason I'm going to use that is there's some, I think, fantastic slow motion sequences in that. And if you want to know specifically what I'm speaking about, go to that movie, 
And when Costner as Ness shoots that gangster through, I think it's a telephone booth in slow motion, watch the glass explode behind him. Because as his body crashes through the glass and it cuts him up, he does a brilliant job and a very De Palma artistic way of using blood to paint the glass with mm-hmm. the blood as it shatters, as the guy's body impacts it. It is a masterpiece. Completely believable. The head being decapitated and the tumbling effect in slow motion. And then laying there in, it's obviously a model. Yeah. But looks entirely real is such a demonstration of directorial mastery using violence. It's not blood spurred everywhere and people covered in it. It's it's short, <laughs> it's sweet. It's almost cauterized in a way that the glass goes through it and cuts it so clean it's almost cauterized. Yep. And then the reflection of the head decapitated in the glass yeah. laying on the glass, is that scene is brilliant. Yeah. That moment is brilliant. Excellent. All right, gentlemen, what is the... I need to take a shot moment of this film. I'll go first because it's in the same sequence that I just previously mentioned. It's the aborted baby in the in the grave there. Like it poses more more questions than answers, but that's a troubling that's a troubling image for me right there. So that's that one for me. It's a big one. Yep. For me, it would be the when Thorne hears about 666 and it doesn't like totally freak him out at that point. But I guess, I mean, as a kid growing up in the late seventies and early eighties, we had all those rock bands that used, you know, Satan as a part of it. And so 666 on album covers and stuff. And so of course we knew all about that. Even Iron Motley Crude. Iron Maiden had a song called number of the beast. That's right. So all those, I mean, as a kid, even if you didn't learn that in church, you probably hear it at that point. So maybe at this point he's not, quite as clear on that but still it i thought who doesn't know that part of it so mm-hmm. i'd need a shot to help me swallow that one pretty sure you can take any sticks album and play them backwards and you hear the devil is in us it's like <laughs> mr roboto backwards <laughs> six 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 maybe because it's such garbage yeah that's probably a lot of it <laughs> okay mine is what's his name father brennan yeah his dormitory Something occurred to me after we finished this conversation just right now. Yeah. What Father Brennan is asking Thorne to do is abort his own child after he's given him the pitch on cannibalism. Mm -hmm. Guys, is it worth considering in that room that's covered with pages of the Bible and terrible looking crosses and zealotry, which is terrifying. Zealotry is terrifying on any level. Real life film, that's terrifying. Yep. Mob mentality is a fucking horror show. Mm -hmm. And zealotry applied as such is even worse. Are we sure in that scene where he doesn't get into the church, Mm -hmm. that's the devil that kills him? Yeah. Are we sure? Are we sure that's not God? Yeah, that's, yeah, it could be. Because you said it, and that's what cued me in. When he's able to pull back the window and there's the image of the church in the distance Mm -hmm. that doesn't let him in, that's a life of what would seemingly be allegiance and loyalty that is forgotten when he needs it the most. And today that scene became, oh my God, I think like literally in the last 17 minutes, 
that became that for me. You know who plays that character in the remake is Pete Postlewaite from He's such a good actor. From Usual Suspects. God rest his soul. Yep. To Pete Postlewaite. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I think that's I'm gonna go with that. All right, excellent. Who's the master distiller on this film? I mean, a lot of people to potentially choose choose from Gregory Peck, score. Who are you guys gonna say is the most in control of this film? Or works the most for you? You wanna go first, Rob? I think Wicked Evil Nanny. This is Baylock. Yes, because I mean, as a parent, you often worry about the influence on your children and you often feel out of control if you can't, you know, help them in that situation. And having her being the one to take take care of him through all that. Um, I mean, she has the greatest influence on this child's life right there with the mm. wealthy parents that aren't around all the time to to watch that. So I like that. And she's good at that character. Yeah. Like she's good at playing oh, yeah. what she's supposed to play. Yeah. Good choice. You like Nurse, Nurse Ratchet, and that's a little bit like her. Yeah. Not quite, but a little bit, huh? Yeah. There's yes. a hint of that there. Go ahead, or you want me to go? You go. Gregory Peck. Again, I like we talked about it. I don't know how the pitch went to him, and <laughs> I, I want to be there, I though. I do. I do. That sounds more interesting. Like, you're Hollywood royalty. We have this horror film we'd like you to do. Sounds good. I'm retired. No, I don't know. Gregory Peck, to me, is always an interesting watch on TV. Like, everybody talks about To Kill a Mockingbird, and I think that's a great film. Atticus Finch, right? Mm-hmm. I think he's better in Cape Fear. I think that is one of the most classically underrated films of all time because he is the worst at protecting his family, and that is including Mika in Paranormal Activity 1. He was yeah, yeah, he's abysmal. The, he's the it. worst. Dude, he's got him beat. He yep. uses his wife and his kid as bait. Yep. Max, Max Katie. Max Katie. <laughs> yep. I'm going to break your heart with it, counselor. Um, watching Gregory Peck in a situation where his decisions are not based in morality, but in the crisis of the moment, the way this does and how that unfolds is infinitely fascinating for me. It's a great performance. Yeah. It's Gregory Peck for me. Excellent. I'm going to go Richard Donner on this one. Uh, I don't very unfamiliar with his work prior to this film, but I believe what he was tasked with doing, getting a good performance out of, out of a little kid to, do some simple things, but he's if that does if he doesn't work, the film doesn't work, and yeah, to to wrangle all these crazy occurrences going on on set to still sally forth and make the film, and then the film's such a hit that like he's a well sought after name, and he's the man that's able to get Superman off the ground. And as we kind of talked about what we ate breakfast, like that was a big hurdle for the masses to believe that comic books could be adapted, and he found a way to do it, and. If this film's not a hit, maybe Superman doesn't happen the way it happens. Maybe comic books are still just like a, a joke in the filmic medium. Like, who knows? The 80s may not happen the way they happen. Yeah. Right? Think about all the action tropes that later are spawned through the Donner Company, even later into the mid-90s. Or Lethal Weapon. That's him. Right. Yep. So, huge film for him. The other, the other, and then he's also instrumental in, um, I can't know if it's his wife or is this, I think it's his wife, Lauren Schuler Donner. Mm-hmm. Their company had a big stake in getting the first X-Men off the ground too. Mm-hmm. So right. Mar- Marvel's research. So he, yeah, it's pretty important in, in, in that in that regard. But I think he handles this film masterfully of all the elements kind of kind of given to him. I can also say just on a side note about Richard Donner, 
when you and I were still working at the screenwriting conference, the Donner's company was always one of the ones that was most accepting and willing to come out oh, cool. and meet with our people. And again, that's completely personal and anecdotal, but I think it represents the chances that that company was willing to take. Who in that Donner's spectrum said, you know who would be good for this role? Gregory Peck. <laughs> I mean, Harry Hamlin wasn't busy. This is before Clash of the Titans. Was, Cl- was Clive Owen old enough to play a dad yet, no, Jesse? We don't talk about him on the podcast. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's go ahead and wrap this up with our ratings. We have Rock Gut, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf ratings for our films. How are you guys going to rate um, The Omen? Oh, let's see. I'm going to give this movie Single Barrel rating. Again, I go back and forth with the Single Barrel versus Top Shelf. And sometimes for me, a single barrel rating is a greater accolade piled on the film than the top shelf rating would be. This movie at its time and the way that it was cast and the things that it launched that you kind of brought up with the Donner's company is so linearly important to horror. And the characters that horror made famous. Does The Shining happen if it's not for The Omen? Does the exorcist happen if it's not for the omen? Well, the exorcist already happened. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I think both of those films, all three of those films fit into a context that it perpetuated a very necessary component in filmmaking. And this is the other part I want to make about this top shelf rating, or I'm sorry, single barrel rating. Jesse, how many directors have you and I spoken of that cut their teeth in horror than then to only go on and do like that. That's a shot. So that's a shot. One of these times. So We're many, do a sh- so many, directors. so many. Yeah. Maybe one's coming up here pretty soon. Sure. So that's for me. I'm going to give it single barrel rating. Excellent. Um, it was really enjoyable to watch. I thought the acting was really good. There's a few moments that are slow. It's not perfect. Yeah. It's not a perfect film, but it's, it's a, a damn good film. Mm. Okay. That's me. What do you got, Rob? I was thinking the same thing as single barrel because you, Consider the time also, what was this, 76? So mm-hmm. 20, 34 years ago yeah. that this was made, that um, for its time it pushed kind of the boundaries. Um, there hadn't been something like this, um, especially with somebody like Gregory Peck playing that role. Yeah. Um, looking at it now, you could say, oh, they could fix this and stuff, as we talked about some things. But um, for the time, I think this scared a lot of people and that was the whole point of it is to make people scared and fear and worry um about especially that last bible verse that's put up there um is this like a message are we what what's happening here with this should we worry about this um so yeah especially considering the time i think that was worthy of it and then kind of thinking of like whether it's Village of the Damned or The Exorcist, like this continues that like Children creep- of the Corn. Yeah, this creepy kid in in film, which is another very used trope, but I think used effectively in in this one. Like I said, he disappears for like the second half of the movie, but like his presence is still very much there. Yeah, I'm gonna fall in line with you guys. I might go a little bit lower than the both of you, like a single barrel minus, and that's no knock against against the film, but. Um, I think it's very solid. I mean, I love seeing like big actors of, of those eras, like willing to play ball in this, in this sandbox. And 
you know, you kind of get that a little bit more now with 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 some films. You can kind of coax a Tony Collette to come be in in Hereditary, and she's amazing in a film like that. But this the same goes for Gregory Peck, and again, to have a big studio like Fox to kind of get behind something like this and to have it be such a hit, yeah, that's just a win all around for the horror genre when they're they're still making psychological films and it won't be for another two years where we're going to get real slasher heavy with our horror, but this is still a time to get really supernatural with it. And the seventies is a great period of in horror for that. So I love it. Look, if Miramax was given the name, the house that Freddie built, this is not, he needs to do it again. New line. Sorry. New line. <laughs> if new line was given that title. Yeah. Doesn't that evolve into Miramax at some point though? No, they eventually evolve into that. If Warner brothers bought them. Yeah. All right. Then I think for an under $3 million budget to return 100K, I'm sorry, 100 million, like you're starting to see, well, maybe we can make these movies and people will go see them because they are profitable. And here you go. This launches a really nice 10-year run. I'd say 77 to 87. There's a lot of good horror in oh, there. Oh, yeah. Do you agree? Oh, big time. <laughs> right. Big time. Yeah, good stuff in there. And so just from the financial thing, which is not a good argument for good film, but in this particular case, inspired this type of film to continually be made. It's huge, man. Yep. It's really at the front lines of an important style of horror. Excellent. I love it, gentlemen. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers to that. Let's wrap this thing up with a nightcap. I used that title track in a, a film I made in college one time. I, I needed something like melodic yet creepy, and I was like, I was like, let me go to that Omen soundtrack, and it was that exact track. It was Eesh. called "On This Night," and so that's when he, that's when they pawn off the the baby there at the beginning of the movie. All right, excellent. So let's kind of just kind of have just like a just an open discussion. You know, this is a film with supernatural undertones. It's about. Uh, the Antichrist and the devil and all this and that. And that's a genre, the supernatural possession demonic film is a very played uh, genre in horror. So when I say that genre, what's the first thing that comes to your mind, like film-wise? Like demon, possession, like what's the first thing that comes to your mind, Rob? Exorcist. I mean, that's, you brought it up before, but that's the one that pops out the quickest for me. It, it possession. is. It is the granddaddy. I yeah, mean, there's nothing that matches it. Do you remember the first time you saw that one? I do. Um, and just, I mean, the thought of a, a little girl being stuck in this house—you know—that's not that scary. And she's she's not out like stalking people and killing you. Because I'd seen it after I saw a lot of slasher movies, mm-hmm. and so you know, being stalked and hunted down was always kind of scary to me. Where I didn't think that there was anything that was scary about a little girl that was possessed by a demon. If she's tied up in the bed, it's all good. But I mean, the scene where she crawls down the stairs upside down, like in that spider type thing, that was the one that freaked the hell out of me mm-hmm. at that point. Um, so yeah, everything is going to come back to the exorcist when, when it comes to possession or anything that's based off of Catholicism. 
As far as landmark films go, can I, I know you're going to ask me the same question. I I'm, just a, I'm actually going to switch the question up for you a little bit. Okay, I have one for you, though. Curve go ahead. Okay. You mean to go or you go? You go? No, you go ahead and say what you're going to say. As much as that movie is discussed, in it, and again, it's in a place, I think, here where it's appreciated. Mm-hmm. Is that one of the most 20 most influential films of all time? Oh, of course. It's got to be, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Is that too low? Is it top 10? I'd, I'd, I'd give it top five, but I'm a horror guy. But I realized the importance that that film had on marketing, uh, you know, the epic scope that horror could present. as well, the out, out of studio system with that is also influential as well. I mean, like kind of on the on the DL, like not big, shiny, MGM, pretty picture kind of movie. No, it's a raw looking film. That's Friedkin. Yeah. Okay, that was my question. Hugely important. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Okay, Matt. Uh, since 2000, when I say Possession Demon horror films, what's the first film that comes to your mind? I could actually probably leap into your brain and pick the film for you. You know what I'm going to... Have I already mentioned it today? Yeah, Paranormal Activity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That very first film bothered me at a level that I have not been bothered by since The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. Now, a movie that's coming later in the cast, which I don't want to talk about, is also in contention here. Sure. But a lot of that had to do with the setting and where I saw that film. Okay. Yeah, man, Paranormal Activity is so smart for me. A lot of the way I look at film is based on the relatability with what I have in my life, and like that's like most people, but I think I purposely try to acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. And the simple nature of scaring people with what you don't see. Like again, the common hashtag of Rice Smile Films is less is more mm-hmm. works so well in that movie. And it's also so wildly frustrating to what it becomes by the time you get to three and beyond. But that movie was everything that the Blair Witch and I don't just dis- dislike the Blair Witch project. Please I, don't don't I every, do I do, so it's okay. <laughs> Everything that the Blair Witch Project claimed that it was that it actually didn't or wasn't, that movie did. Sure. Huge film. Good choice. Yeah. All right. What's your question? Well, I just kind of shot it to you. Influence. But if I was going to give you a term and you were going to play word association. Okay. Scariest Antichrist. I mean, you do think Damien, right? Like right off, right off the bat. I mean, in in that regard, and it's interesting the way that the franchise kind of takes him at different, like in like a high school type of environment, and then as an adult. I mean, yeah, he's 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 pretty he's pretty good. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm probably gonna have to go with him. I, that that seems like the on the nose answer, but I think I like seeing him here as the adolescent as he's kind of coming into that role. And then the illusion at the at the the end of the film provides. I love it. I mean, and it's it's simple. It, it feels simple to me. Rob, same question for you. The only one that I could think of that would compare is Rosemary's Baby. Um, mm-hmm. We have to do that film sooner or later. Yeah, Jesse. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll we do it. have to. I know. Um, I mean, Omen, because I can't think of anything else. That if, so if it doesn't pop into my head, I don't think it's had that big of an impact that I would recall it at this point, Rosemary's Baby especially. Well, that was in the 60s, wasn't it? Yeah, like 67? Yeah. Yeah. Um, just that one where you, you think everybody is with you and then the sudden realization that everybody is against you or there's this greater thing that's happening and you're just kind of sucked into that and you're being controlled, that's that's terrifying to me. And I don't know how they've never made a sequel to that because there is a book written by the, the author Ira Levin um, 
called Son of Rosemary, which continues on the story. So mm. I'm shocked. Interesting. I didn't know that. Didn't he write Stepford Wives as well? Yeah. 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 yeah I like that movie. Uh, excellent. Yeah. One of the other ones I do think of, and it's a little, it's not off the beaten path because the horror community loves it. But when I think of possession demonically, I kind of think of the Evil Dead um, birth through the readings of the Necronomicon that come and possess you by forces you don't see. And that's treated more comically than this film and films like The Exorcist, but I think that paints a different picture. And even new, newer films, like we mentioned Hereditary and films like The Conjuring, I think also tackle the subject fairly well. Um, there's just so much you can do with it, really. Whether it's a pagan cult, whether it's the Antichrist, whether it's a possession from a book, an ancient demon, like there's so many things you can do with this subgenre. When you take a child and change what's a sweet nature just by the look of children into hellish, murderous, strategic, whatever word you want to use there that fits the, the demonic possession at the time. You watch that out of sick pleasure. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to hang out with kids that do terrible things. I teach some of them. I don't want to hang out with them. I mean, it's a much, that's a much less degree than trying to kill me. Yeah. God forbid. Yeah. Why is that such a popular horror trope? You mentioned hereditary, uh, the conjuring. Why, what, what is that? I think a part of it uh, derives from the idea that you don't, as a parent, your biggest fear is raising something like that. I mean, you look at, some awful people like a Charles Manson or a Ted Bundy or a Jeffrey Dahmer. And you say what went wrong parentally and you just don't want to make those mistakes. It's the bastardization of childhood and youth and, and, and raising the meaning of life as, as Monty Python says. Uh, yeah. And it's just totally flipped on its head in all these instances, man, my child's trying to kill me now. Like what is going on? Is the importance of trying to find rationale for that so you can prevent it because the thought of it is just so terrifying? Absolutely. It's got to be, right? Mm -hmm. It's like practicing it through the screen yep. so that you don't have to do it in real life. I think what's scariest to me is the fact that you can't, there's nothing you can do to guard against it. Jaws terrified everybody, but the easy don't go in the ocean and you're good. Um, but this one, I mean, you can't control every aspect. I mean, it's something like that as a parent, especially, I mean, you're completely powerless over what's happening to your child and to me that's like one of the scariest things is not having control not being able to fix something um so especially thinking that something else is controlling my child that would be terrifying also i think that's why it'll always play excellent rob thank you for coming on on the on the show today to discuss the omen with us this has been a great episode it's been no you you have an association with with matt but I, i've never met you it's a pleasure to meet you and just talk film like this, this is what we do on the show so well thank you i appreciate you guys having me on this this was a lot of fun i have a question for you if yes. there was any film you could come back for to discuss what would it be like silence of the lambs excellent another one another one of my favorites i've heard of that don't heard you that hurt one. my dog <laughs> so good oh excellent okay noted in the notebook. Noted. 
Perfect. Well, uh, we're going to be continuing on this cask in, in the in the coming weeks. And coming up next week, we're going to fulfill a little fan request. So our pal, uh, Joey, he's been corresponding with us, emails and stuff about Rocky and Reservoir Dogs and a bunch of great stuff. And he put in a request like probably about two months ago. Finally going to fulfill it. We're going to live up to it. I'm only going to play a sound effect, but it's enough to tell you exactly what this film is. <laughs> Ooh, I can't wait to talk about the sound design in, in this movie. So coming up next week from 1974, Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I'm excited to talk about this because I've actually done something that I don't do uh, frequently in my film viewing. And I, I was I pretty I soured on this film the first time I saw it. I didn't think it lived up to the name. I mean, the, the hype. I was expecting a bloodbath in this thing, and that's not what this film is. And I watched it again within the last couple recently, like last two years and I've done a total 180 on this film. Like mm. I'm on this film side. I'll just tell you right now. I think this film's a quiet masterpiece. Uh, quiet's not the right word, but like I'm, I'm on board with this film. Again, what's going to be fun is I haven't seen it in a decade plus. So it'll be nice to, to sit down and revisit it. I will say real quickly that my first viewing came with the common technique that we often use, which was use my buddy's account and steal a movie under his parents' name and thank God for Smith's VHS rental because that's how I got my eyes on this one the first time too. Excellent. Yeah. Have you seen this one, Rob? Yes, mm -hmm. I did years ago. Um, yeah, I heard all the hype on it and stuff and I was kind of disappointed also when I saw it initially. Special effects weren't quite a what it was and it just seemed kind of thrown together. Um, but yeah, that'd be worth watching again, though, especially after seeing the remake that they made. Yes, I just totally two totally different yeah. different films. So yeah, you got that coming to you, Joey, and we're gonna have another another guest, uh, someone that has been on the show before, but we'll save that surprise until we're on the air. Yeah. But that one's gonna be a lot of fun. So gentlemen, it's been a blast. Sure has. Good job, guys. Excellent. So I gotta get going. I gotta go to the cemetery, and I hope I don't see a jackal dog in the in the grave when I go visit, like because. I'll just shit. <laughs> I'm going to make sure that whatever laws need to be enforced, that the curb your dog and leash effect is in play when you go to that cemetery. Oh my gosh, that would sure yes. make it easier for you to dig up that grave. What about you, Rob? What are you going to do? Uh, I think I'm going to go home and take care of my kids. <laughs> yeah, I'm good gonna, idea. I'm going to shave their heads really quickly. <laughs> I'm going to double check things. Good idea. That's the moral of this film. Excellent, everybody. We'll see you all next week. Everybody have a great week. We'll take see care. you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, be sure to leave us a five-star review. We'd greatly appreciate it. The Omen is property of 20th Century Fox and Mace Newfeld Productions, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Excuse me, Mr. President. When you're ready to leave, your car is right over there. In a moment. Yes, sir. Oh.